Well, keep your Bibles open to First uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, which we're going to be looking at this morning. I'd like to say what a privilege it is to be with you. Uh, thank you for the invitation and thank you for uh, rearranging the schedule. I had booked an, we had booked another date and, and a conflict arose and you graciously changed your schedule. And so I appreciate uh, the warm invitation. Now, I don't have a Father's Day message today. I'm afraid I'm not very good at special occasion messages. I can handle sort of Christmas and Easter, but beyond that, I'm not very good for Father's Day or Mother's Day or Groundhog Day or whatever your special day might be. Uh, but it looks like we've, always, we've already had a wonderful tribute to fathers. Uh, I hope all the fathers have a happy Father's Day and you all get a new tie or whatever fathers get these days for Father's Day. Maybe lunch at the Swiss Chalet or something like that. Uh, my, our family, uh, knowing I'd be here today, we had our Father's Day celebration last weekend. And nice barbecue at one of our children's homes and we had a happy time together. 1 Peter chapter 3, and the verses have already been read to you, and uh, I would like to uh, speak to you on the subject, what is the gospel? Now, the reason I have been thinking about this subject is I was quite surprised to read recently a blog post on an internet site by a self-described pastor of an evangelical church here in Ontario, and he was making a rather serious charge, an allegation, uh, against another more well-known man here in Ontario. Uh, I don't know a great deal about his ministry, but I have heard of his name, and uh, represents a large, what would be considered an evangelical church. And the charge was this, that this second man, the more well-known man, in the opinion of the first man, had a unbiblical view of what the gospel is, more specifically, what the meaning of the death of Christ is. Now, I don't know if it's true. I read some quotations, but I don't know if these were in, taken in their context. I'm not going to mention any names because I'd only be repeating something. I don't really know if it's true. I hope it's not true. But if it is true, and there are signs of this in larger spheres in the world today, among the evangelical world, is that there is emerging a rather distorted view of the gospel. Now the reason that's such a serious thing is that the gospel is fundamental to our faith. If we are at, in the least, at the least confused about the gospel, Everything else will go wrong. We must be crystal clear as to the message of the gospel. In this section here in 1 Peter, <clears throat> it begins at verse 18 of chapter 3, I suggest, and it actually runs not by chapter division, but down to verse 11 of chapter 4. And there are four or three, rather, sections of thought in this passage of Scripture. Uh, the first one in these uh, verses to verse 22, 18 to 22, uh, with the emphasis there on the matter of our salvation. And then in verse 1 to verse 6 of chapter 4, he speaks about what we could describe as our sanctification. And then in verses 7 down to verse 11, uh, he, he, he speaks there about our, what we could describe as our stewardship 
in the gospel. And so he speaks about our salvation in connection with the gospel, our sanctification in connection with the gospel, and our stewardship in connection with the gospel. Our salvation, how we come to Christ, what it means to become a Christian, what is the significance of the death of Christ. And then our sanctification, having become a Christian, there is a process of growth that is expected in every Christian life that manifests itself in a new way of living, a way of living that is dominated by the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives and not dominated by the presence of our old earthly flesh. It is a life that is lived in this world that now is not a life dominated by sin, but a life that is dominated by a holy walk in the midst of an ungodly world. Our sanctification, it is a process, a lifelong process of growth. And then the third section is our stewardship. He uses that word actually in verse 10, that we might be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And he speaks about our giftedness in our local church fellowships and our responsibility to discharge our, our, our stewardship obligations to the glory of God, that God may be glorified. And so these three ideas in this particular section of Peter's epistle. We'll look at the first one this morning. The gospel in connection with our salvation. Now, there are four ideas I suggest to you in, these section, in this section from verse 18 to 22. In, verses, uh, in verse 18, yeah, he speaks about uh, what we could describe as the suffering connected to our salvation. That Christ also hath once suffered for sins. The suffering connected to our salvation and the meaning of that. The significance of Christ's death at the cross. And then in verses 19 and 20, he, he speaks about uh, what I'd like to call the seriousness of our salvation. And he raises a, a somewhat difficult passage of Scripture, and interpreters uh, often differ on the meaning of this. Uh, but there's one thing that is clear in almost every interpretation is the significance of belief and unbelief that there are consequences to believing or not believing the gospel, eternal consequences. The seriousness of our salvation, the gospel is a serious message. And then thirdly, in verse 21, he speaks about the symbol of our salvation, baptism. Why we, we practice believers' baptism, the symbol of our salvation and its significance. And then finally, in verse 22, he speaks about the supremacy of the Savior of our salvation. He who is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto Him. We serve, we belong to the One who is the supreme, the supreme One of the universe. There are no rivals. He holds an unrivaled position the supremacy of the Savior of our salvation, the suffering connected to our salvation. 
Theologians <coughs> have some useful expressions from time to time, and they have traditionally, in Orthodox Christianity, have described the death of Christ this way. They say it is a penal, meaning it was an act that was paying a penalty. It was a penal, substitutionary, that is, it was done on behalf of others, atonement. The penal, substitutionary atonement of the death of Christ. Now that might sound like high high theological language, but it is intended to summarize something that is very significant. And, and when I mentioned that blog post that I read earlier, this was the essence of what the first man was accusing the second man of denying. He, he said he denies the penal substitutionary atonement as the explanation of the death of Christ. Now that's a pretty serious charge if it's true. Because this is precisely how Peter describes the death of Christ. Peter, who, who identifies himself, and quite rightly so, so, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means he was personally, specifically chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ to be his authorized spokesman. That when Peter spoke, when Peter wrote, just like Paul, just like John, they were speaking authoritatively under divine revelation from the Lord Himself. Through the Holy Spirit of God who was revealing truth, uh, much of which has never been revealed before. It is, in fact, the living Word of God. So when we're reading Peter's words here, while we identify Peter as the human author, we are really reading God's words. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. Behind every human author of the Bible, there is the divine author. And so while Peter is the human instrument, it is the Word of God. This is God's description of the death of Christ. Now these three ideas, the penal substitutionary atonement, are captured in this verse. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. He was paying a penalty. The just for the unjust. He died as our substitute that He might bring us to God. It was an atoning sacrifice. That is, the effect of the death of Christ was such that we might be brought to a holy God. Now, many of you here this morning, I suppose, would say, well, we've heard this for years. You've, some of you had the privilege of growing up in Christian homes, and you've heard this from your earliest days. This is Sunday School 101 for some of you. And you might wonder, do we really need to go over such basic, fundamental things? Well, I suggest to you we do. There are winds blowing through, not liberal Protestantism, mainline Protestantism, that, that, that long ago abandoned the authority of Scripture. I'm talking about the professed evangelical world, where strange winds are blowing. And a distorted message of the gospel is, being, is emerging. Where we have explanations of the death of Christ as, as being merely a, a bold statement of commitment to what one believes. Or a tragic expression of a great injustice where a good man died unnecessarily. 
that simply appeals to to human ingenuity and human self-will to rise to the highest and most noble calling of life and the teachings of Christ are are, are nothing more than a modern-day life coach to us. Where Jesus Christ could be easily replaced as a model by a coach of a national professional champion sports team or a articulate social psychologist or a leading politician academic or business leader that Jesus Christ is thought of as just being one of many voices that might provide useful guidance in life and help us navigate through life and be happier people. The evangelical church is flirting with so-called social justice movements that are distorted caricatures of the genuine gospel, co-opting and distorting the words of Jesus Christ as if it was merely a social movement to make this world a better place. As noble as that might sound and appeal, even to Christians, it is not the message of the gospel. But the message of the gospel is that it is a penal, substitutionary atonement. It was a penal. Christ also once suffered for sins. You see, here's the message that people don't want to hear. They don't want to hear that they're sinners in the sight of God. It's not just that we're weak. It's not just that we failed. It's not just that we're broken. Yes, all of those things are true. But the fundamental problem is, is that we are sinners at the heart of it. We're culpable sinners. It's not that we're sinners through no fault of our own. We are sinners through fault of our own. It is this message that shatters man's illusions of himself. That shatters man's high, noble ideas of himself. That challenges man's desperation that he might identify, that he might find meaning for himself explanation for himself in terms that rule God out of the equation. He wants a closed system, a philosophy that never, ever, at any time brings God into the equation. And any mention of God must only be a God of our own making. And not the transcendent God of the divine revelation of the Bible. Christ also hath once suffered for sins. This is the consistent message of the Bible. From the very beginning of of Genesis to the end of Revelation. To put it as Paul the Apostle put it, Christ died for our sins. Or on another occasion, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That the Lord Jesus Christ came to die 
And at the cross of Calvary, He was taking upon Himself the righteous judgment of God against the sin of the whole world. Think of that. John said of Him, John the Baptist said of Him, Behold the Lamb of God that beareth away the sin of the world. What must the sin of the world look like? We can hardly handle it reading about it in a single day. But think about the sin of the whole world. From that first defiant act in the garden by Adam and Eve to the very end of time Every act of sin, of violence, of abuse, of hatred, of killing, of self-righteousness, every angle, aspect of it for the entire history of humanity crying out for the, just, the justice of God. Christ once suffered for sins. In all of His perfection, in all of His holiness, in all of His sinlessness, He could stand and pay the price of the sins of the whole world. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, and many, many others like him, never got over the fact as he said the son of god loved me and he gave himself for me i hope we have all here this morning seen ourselves as the sinners for whom christ died that we have no illusions as to who the lord jesus christ really is and what He came to do, and what He accomplished when He died at Calvary. Peter reminds us that He once suffered for sins. W.E. Vine, a Greek uh, scholar, puts it this way in connection with this word once. He says it describes an act of perpetual validity, not requiring repetition. That's the idea of it. He suffered once, and in that act of suffering at Calvary, He once and forever died on account of our sins. It will never expire. Sin will never overtake the value of the death of Christ. That for all of eternity, all of eternity, think of that, it will forever satisfy God's righteous claim against us. This is why we find forgiveness in the death of Christ. Because Christ has died for us. It was a penal substitutionary atonement. Secondly, you'll notice he says it is the just for the unjust. It was substitutionary. Now the English uh, doesn't 
uh, bring it out as clearly, but if you examine the words, the word just there is a singular word. The just one, it could be. One that was just. It was just one. It was singular. The unjust is plural, meaning many. It, it, it describes for us the fact that Christ died as a substitute. It was the just in the place of the unjust. We who are unjust, unrighteous, unholy, sinners in the sight of God, who deserve God's judgment against our sin. The Lord Jesus Christ steps into our place and He stands as our substitute. He stands as our representative. He stands as the one to take the judgment of God on our place so that we would not have to face it. He is our substitute. We can personalize the death of Christ. Christ died for me. Yes, He died for the sins of the whole world, but we shouldn't think of it in an impersonal way. He died for me. He died for you. Think about that. He died for you. You as a solitary individual with your own personal history, your own personal sins, your own personal circumstances of life. He died for you as an individual. God, it is only God who has the capacity to have a vital interest in the individual life. He doesn't deal with humanity in this mass anonymity. Billions though that we may be, it was God who has the capacity to deal with every individual as if we were the only individual He had to deal with. The just. For us, the unjust. It was a substitutionary death. And then it was, again as the theologians like to say, an atoning death. And that's the third idea that Peter brings up in verse 18, that He might bring us to God that He might bring us to God. He brings us into a right relationship with God. That when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the benefits that accrue to us are enormous. We are cleansed from all of our sin. We are forgiven of the guilt of our sin. That word forgiven really means to, to send away or to let loose. It is God's righteous judicial act of taking the sin that is attached to us by virtue of us being guilty in committing sins and separates us from the sin. The, the Old Testament had expressions. It said as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. That's a beautiful poetic expression. You see, in our judicial system, we have no way of separating the crime from the criminal. We can't do that. We don't have any mechanism to do that. But in God's judicial system, He can do that. He can take the criminal and He can remove the crime from that criminal. And the criminal stands. In fact, Paul goes so bold as to say we are justified. We are, that means we are declared to have a righteous standing before God. And if that's not enough, he says in the Ephesian epistles, he says we are actually in Christ. Not just 
connected to Christ, not just knowing Christ's name, we are said to be in Christ. That's a way of trying to say that that's how we stand before God. We stand as Christ stands before God. That's what God has been able to do in reversing the effect of the curse that Satan introduced to humanity and seducing him into the failure of sin and rebellion, and God is able to redeem us because of what Christ has done at Calvary. He has brought us to God with a right standing before Him. That's a tremendous place to be. To be able to say, I stand securely and for all of eternity. Now, that doesn't mean that we're immediately perfect as people. Oh no, that's a process. Salvation is an event. It happens in a moment of time. But the sanctifying process is a lifetime of experience. So don't be disappointed with yourself. Don't be frustrated with yourself when you recognize that even though you are a Christian, that you still have deficiencies and failures. Now, don't get complacent about it. But on the other hand, don't be overwhelmed with disappointment and discouragement. It's a long road. It's a lot of learning. It's a lifelong process. He brings us to God. The suffering of our salvation. And then secondly, he speaks about the seriousness of our salvation. And he raises a, a most interesting uh, idea here. And uh, it, it is really, I tell you, the, I read one commentary and the man was saying that he had read another commentary that had 12 different interpretations of these verses. He didn't bother to list them for us, but uh, nonetheless, 12 different ideas because it is unusual language because we really don't find much detail uh, in any other parts of Scripture that help us to, to, to grasp what, what he's getting at here. But he does link this because he, is, he, is, he writes in sort of a chain here. You'll notice at the end of verse 18, it says, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. And that becomes a segue into the next idea, by which, that is, by the Spirit, also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. And verses 19 and 20 are a connected idea. It ends with the idea of water. He gets into the story of Noah Eight souls were saved by water, and that word water at the end of verse 20 becomes a segue into verse 21, where he links it to baptism, the picture of baptism. He links it with the water of baptism. And then at the end of verse 21, he, says, he makes reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's a segue into the supremacy of Christ in verse 22. So it's like links in a chain in these four ideas. So the second idea, uh, he, he mentions that by the Spirit, he says, He, Christ, went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now what on earth does that mean? The spirits in prison, there are different ideas. It says that these are those, verse 20, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was, was preparing what is he talking about? Well, there are different ideas. Some have the idea, have, have suggested the idea that Christ went and preached to those who had died, those from Noah's day, from that era, 
uh, who were unbelievers and offered to them again an opportunity for salvation. And some Christian thinkers have posited this. They have they have, have suggested that in the final analysis, there will yet be opportunity for salvation to those that have died. Now, the problem with that idea is that it's, it's flatly contradicted in other parts of Scripture. And so that can be ruled out immediately, that there is no second chance of salvation after death. Others suggest that when he speaks about the spirits in prison, He's talking about uh, those fallen angels. You remember in the story of Noah that it's described as angels. They came and they intermingled with humanity and said to be fallen angels, as many interpreters look at it. And in fact, Peter in his second epistle does make reference to that, uh, how they came into corrupt humanity. And, and uh, so some have suggested that what Peter is saying here is that Christ is, is went into, into uh, this, these, this prison, they, some suggested it's hell itself, and, uh, and preached to those fallen angels and said, my work is complete and I have redeemed humanity. Sort of a triumphant statement of, of the truth of the gospel. Some have uh, suggested that. Others even suggest uh, that what Peter was saying here is that the Lord went and he preached um, uh, to those that uh, were disobedient uh, at the time of, uh, of Noah, that they were the unbelievers of Noah's day, that he went and he proclaimed again the truth of the gospel to them. Uh, and uh, they, they think that that's maybe what he's, uh, what he's saying. It seems to me one useful way of looking at this is by comparing some other things that Peter says in this epistle. And I suggest to you that, that, that what, what Peter is saying here, he says that when Christ went and preached unto the spirits in prison, he tells us that he did so by the Spirit, by the Spirit. Now that alerts us to something else Peter has already said in this epistle. And he has already told us back in verse 11 of chapter 1, he says there, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. In other words, uh, he's saying there that the Old Testament prophets, when they spoke, in the ancient times, they were, they were speaking as men moved by the Holy Spirit, what Peter refers to as the Spirit of Christ. And so when these ancient prophets spoke, they weren't speaking just a message that they had made up themselves. They were spokesmen for God. And they were, they, they, uh, as Peter would later say in the second epistle, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so it's suggested that, that what Peter is getting at here is not that Christ, after he suffered, went and preached to the spirits in prison, but rather that Christ, through his spirit, spoke through Noah, who, who Peter describes in his second epistle as a preacher of righteousness. And that it was the spirit of Christ that was in Noah preaching to his day. And when he uses this expression, the spirits that are in prison, what he is saying is that those who lived in Noah's day and heard the gospel 
are now and, and, and rejected it. He says they were disobedient, meaning they were disobedient in unbelief. He says those people in Noah's day who heard the gospel and rejected it are now in prison. That word is a cage. They are held waiting for the day of final judgment yet to come. Regardless of what interpretation we might take of this passage, there's one idea that remains. And that is to say that if one does not believe the gospel in life, you will be lost for eternity. It's pretty serious, isn't it? The seriousness of the gospel. It is not just a happy message to make people feel good. It's not just a message that will help you in the problems and difficulties of life. That is true. But it's a mere byproduct of the gospel. It's one of the incidental blessings that flow out of the gospel. That's not the main message of the gospel. This message has eternal ramifications. And he contrasts that with those who did believe. It said, while the ark was a preparing or in few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. That in 120 years of preaching the message of righteousness by Noah, a man in whom the Spirit of Christ dwelt, only eight souls believed the message. Pretty solemn, isn't it? We should not be overly discouraged when we find that people are not willing to accept the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that we give up in any way. It doesn't mean that at all. We redouble our efforts the, with the help of God to spread the message of the gospel because the ramifications of rejecting the gospel are too horrible to contemplate. That men and women in this life, breathing, thinking, reading, hearing, it is now they have the opportunity to find eternal salvation. For when the last breath is drawn Without Christ, it will consign them to a lost eternity forever. Pretty serious, isn't it? This is why evangelism is so important. This is why living out Christ in our communities is so important. It's a stepping stone by which we might have opportunity to explain the gospel further. At the workplace, every day do we live Christ in the workplace. In the neighborhoods, in our other relationships that we have with people, do we live Christ? I don't mean do we always try to talk to people about Christ. That will come later as we are given audience, but do we just live Christ at first? Do we make Christ attractive? Do we make the gospel attractive to people? As we conduct our business with people, as we, we just interact in society, do they see Christ 
And do they find it attractive? What kind of a worker are we at the workplace? Are we a good worker? Or are we a bad worker? Are we always complaining? Are we always finding fault? Are we always griping? What about the neighborhood? Do we ever help anybody? Do we ever talk to anybody? What about the school? What kind of a student are you? What kind of a teacher are you? These are all places that we have been placed that we might communicate the gospel because it is of such vital importance to men and women. The seriousness of the gospel. Evangelism requires prayer. This is serious business. We are up against men and women who are held in the powers of darkness. Souls will not be one without us engaging in serious and earnest prayer for every effort in the gospel to break down the powers of darkness. It can't be done with light-hearted tomfoolery. It requires those who are earnest in prayer. The seriousness of the gospel. I hope all of us have believed the gospel here this morning. And know Christ as our Savior. Thirdly, the symbol, uh, the symbol of our salvation. He links it in verse 21 to baptism. The like figure, that is, uh, the waters of Noah's day that buoyed the ark up. He says that water is a picture uh, uh, of baptism. He says the, that baptism saves us. Saves us. Now, when, when, when the New Testament uses that word save, we have to have to consider its context. We often think of salvation as the initial act of salvation of coming to Christ. But the word is used more broadly than that. It is not just the initial act of salvation, but, but it speaks of it often in a broader way, the salvation of our life as a Christian, for example, uh, of a, uh, uh, that is saved uh, for a useful life of service for God and saved from a useless life. Uh, and so he's using salvation here. It saves us in the sense of our advancement and growth as a Christian. And he, and he, he parenthesizes that, or at least in the English it's, it's put in parenthesis, just to make sure we don't get the wrong idea, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. In other words, we shouldn't think of, of baptism as some people have thought it is. They think that it's washing away our sins. That, that there's some sort of spiritual thing takes place when we actually go into baptism. If a person is baptized, but they're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, nothing will happen in that baptism. They'll simply get wet. But nothing of spiritual significance will take place in the life. This is why baptizing babies and children is a ridiculous idea. A baby has made no conscious choice to accept Christ. It's a thoroughly unbiblical idea, not taught in the Bible at all. Baptism. What is baptism? It's a symbolic display of an inward reality. It, it, it is the, it is the uh, symbolic act showing a death, a burial going into the water, and a resurrection. That's what took place when you put your faith in Christ. You made a complete break from what you were before you were a Christian. And it's, and it's pictured graphically in the idea of death. 
It's as if you died. The old you died. And a new you was born. Now you might not have noticed that. You might say, well, I still look the same and I still talk the same. And you might not have noticed it. But you became a brand new person in the sight of God. Now, your circumstances might not have changed very much. But, but, something is starting to work in your life that is changing you. You now are in possession of a new kind of life that you did not possess before you put your faith in Christ. And the dynamics of that life start to take over. And you begin to notice a change in attitude. You begin to notice a change of things that you think about. And things that you never thought twice about doing before, you're now thinking twice about doing. And you're now beginning to feel bad over some of the things you say and some of the attitudes that you're harboring. Why? Because the Spirit of God's there now. And He's beginning to do a work of renovation in your life. And He's beginning to throw out some of the old trash. And He's beginning to replace it with some brand new things. And baptism portrays that. This is why Christians are called to be baptized, to be publicly baptized, to go through this rite of going down into the water and coming up out of the water. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God, as Paul says. The knowledge within, it's saying, yes, I'm affirming to all who are willing to see it. I am affirming this change in my life. It's not something that I've done. Something what Christ has done, but it's there nonetheless. Baptism saves us in that sense. And then the last idea, and with this I'll close, the supremacy of the Savior of our salvation. It says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, verse 22, and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Boy, Paul, both Peter and Paul use some tremendous language, and John himself as well. Uh, I like P Paul's words in, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, which he wrought regarding his power, God's power. With God's power, he says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far, far, above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The Lord Jesus Christ occupies a place of unrivaled power and authority. He sits in that place now and He will be, be there for all of eternity. There will never be another challenge to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's nothing that has existed, that does exist, or yet will exist in eternity. Nothing absolutely can touch the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says we are His body. The full fullness. The, the completion of Him who fills all in all. 
That's what it is to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. It is to be connected to the one who reigns in absolute supremacy and authority for all of eternity. That's our position. That's where we stand today, right here, now, this morning, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it follow on the simplest, most basic level of logic that my life should be made available to Him? C.T. Studd said those famous words, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for Him. Are there things in our lives that shouldn't be there? Get rid of them. Get rid of them. Stop playing around with compromised Christianity. Stop playing around with low-level Christianity. God wants to utilize every single one of us to fulfill His purposes. Don't tell me that you don't have this and you're not like that. And you're, don't talk about all the things you're not. Talk about the things that you are in Christ. God has gifted and enabled every single one of us in His own unique way. It's not all the same way. We all can't do everything. But we can all do something for the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we in the place where God is able to use us and are we faithful at the calling to which he has called us the greatness of our salvation its suffering its seriousness its symbolism and the supremacy of our savior shall we pray father how thankful we are for what the writer to the hebrews describes as our great salvation great because of who it centers in our lord jesus christ and Father, even though we've looked at some sort of basic, fundamental, introductory ideas in connection with the gospel, we pray that they'll be firmly impressed upon our hearts and minds as they might have their intended effect upon all of our lives that we might be men and women available to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that all of us will be clear about this matter of salvation and be sure that all of us have put our faith in Christ. If there's any here that are outside of Christ, They've never really believed this and accepted this for themselves. The death of Christ for themselves, Father, give them the courage to do so this morning. We thank Thee again for our fellowship one with another and ask for Thy rich blessing upon the fellowship of believers here. We pray that this fellowship will be kept and preserved to the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ until He returns in His name.